Welcome, dear readers. You are listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast. We are once again coming to you from the Millennium Library in our home, the Carol Shields Auditorium, which is located on Treaty 1 territory and on land that is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. In this episode, we will discuss poetry by poets. I'm Alan Chorney, branch head of the Transcona Library, and the poet I'm championing today is Charles Bukowski. To my left is... Hi, I'm Erica Ball. I'm the branch head at Fort Gary Library. I had picked for Poetry Month Dorothy Parker, but I'm going to bring in a couple of other people as well, because that's how I do. Uh, Hello, everybody. I'm Trevor. I'm the poet laureate of the Louis Riel Library. (laughs) And to my left is... Nice. I'm Kirsten, and I am the librarian over at Harvey Smith Library. Harvey Smith was not a poet, but I am championing Katrina Vermette, who does sometimes come and pick up her holds at Harvey Smith, and I'm always all a flutter. Oh, I forgot to tell everyone my uh, poet. Uh, I am apparently championing Robert Frost. <laughs> apparently. There you go. Exactly right. Well, we'll see what happens. Perhaps I, I know. might have just... another, bring another one in, just yeah. a couple in Erica. Stay and... tuned. We couldn't do this without you. We're excited to hear what poets you want to champion. It's your questions and comments that form the heart of our discussion. So make us laugh or make us cry by emailing us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca or leave a comment on our website, wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. Find out if your comments made it on the air by subscribing to Time to Read on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. In a moment, Erica will start by answering the softball question, what is poetry? After which we will discuss poetry. Uh, You can get in on the conversation by email emailing us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca. And don't forget to stick around for the end for a special segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. If poetry scares the bejesus out of you, don't worry, sometimes it scares the bejesus out of me too. So I'm going to turn it over to Erica to assuage our fears. I think it's assuage. <laughs> I thought you said massage our fears. <laughs> Is it a combination word? I, I have I have a I actually have a book of modern English usage on my desk at the library. I'm going to look into that. Uh, okay, report tomorrow. back. And now that Alan said bejesus twice, uh, Dennis is going to have to put another explicit uh, warning. Uh, <laughs> explicit warning on there. <laughs> is bejesus explicit? <laughs> Did I say it wrong? <laughs> well, this is actually making me feel better because I'm there's a word coming up that I'm not sure how to pronounce. So poetry. Um, I am in no way qualified to talk about what poetry is. So I went to that fount of all knowledge font of all knowledge fount fount i think it's of all knowledge wikipedia to see what uh, it had to say said poetry the term derives from a variant of the greek term poesis or making is a form of literature that uses aesthetic and rhythmic qualities of language such as phonoaesthetics sound symbolism and meter to evoke meanings in addition to or in place of the prosaic ostensible meaning and i really like the phrase prosaic ostensible meaning mm-hmm. poetry has a very long history dating back to prehistorical times with the creation of hunting poetry in africa and panegyric and elegiac court poetry was developed extensively throughout the history of the empire of the Nile, Niger, and Volta River Valleys. Some of the earliest written poetry in Africa can be found among the pyramid texts written during the 25th century BCE. Poetry uses forms and conventions to suggest differential interpretation of words or to evoke emotive responses. Devices such as assonance, alliteration, onomatopoeia, and rhythm are sometimes used to achieve musical or incantatory effects. The use of ambiguity, symbolism, irony, and other stylistic elements of poetic diction often leaves a poem open to multiple interpretations. Similarly, figures of speech such as metaphor, simile, and metonymy create a resonance between otherwise disparate images, a layering of meanings, forming connections previously not perceived. Kindred forms of resonance may exist between individual verses in their patterns of rhyme or rhythm. So there's a bunch of beautiful words to talk a about. A lot of beautiful poetry. words, actually. Yeah, yeah, it cleared it all up. I'm going to surreptitiously be checking Google now for the rest of the podcast, trying to figure out what half those words mean, but that's all right. <laughs> that's all right. They just go back to pretty. Wikipedia and click on all the links yeah. on all those words, and you can get yeah, more it's information. Yeah, a, a good overview. Thanks, Wikipedia. So as we alluded to at the top of the show, we all chose a poet to discuss or not discuss, but... 
Does anyone? <laughs> yeah. I, don't I don't know. I don't know why I said that. It's because we chose the poem, the poets, weeks ago, right? And right. since then, oh, I mean, like I've been like, you, I've been like, right. oh, it's a poetry, it's yeah. a poem thing, it's a poetry, whatever, right. and and so I've been, and then especially like local poets keep popping across like my desk and stuff, so. I've sort of been just sort of nibbling in all kinds of poetry this month, which is good. More so than usual, do you think? Yeah, more definitely more so than usual. I don't really read poetry so much. I, I feel like it's should. one of those weird things where all month I've been like noticing poetry more and I'm like, is this just a coincidence or is it one of those things where because I'm thinking about it, I actually pay attention where Because well, it's, it's also exists. National Poetry Month, so it is everywhere. Oh, no, is it? Yes. Whoa. <laughs> that, so it is everywhere. So, I mean, it's like, yeah. it's on in every, you know. And so it's doing what it's supposed to do. That's what the months are supposed to do, Absolutely. Right? Is like yeah. National Poetry Month, is that a Canadian thing? Is that an American thing that we're just kind of borrowing? I, or? I, don't I think know, it's a North like, American thing. North American. Like the... I think the League of Canadian Poets definitely promotes The it. League of Canadian Poets. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And then the yeah. American version, too. Yeah. The version of le- the, the League. The American yes, League of Canadian yes, Poets. Yes. And what about the Europeans? Why aren't they celebrate poetry? They, they celebrate poetry every day. <laughs> every month. Yeah. Every day every is day. Every, every month. There's poetry month in Europe. Right. 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 They like to pretend that they invented poetry. <laughs> yeah. I think we're a little bit silly today because it's actually been two months since we did this. Yeah. Yeah. And last month was our live episode. So I think we're just all a little bit out just, of practice, and, out and, of sync. And we're not actually discussing one book. So as far as it's like weird. being structured, we're kind of a little like, ah! <laughs> which is okay. It's okay. So then somebody should just start talking about their book then. They're poet i i, yeah. I think well i think my poet can segue nicely into our conversation about okay. poetry i don't know had, did everyone read the poem that i picked <laughs> no. on, the, on the blog i mean on the reader salon sure i read all yeah. those blogs <laughs> like like the whole poem or just the little stanza i just, that, I just I read, read the stanza i just read the stanza yeah. that you talk I thought, about okay. it. I thought that was right. the whole thing I didn't okay. so what it. i'll do is i'll do the author bio of charles bukowski and then i'll quickly read the poem and then we can discuss the implications of the poem on poetry as a whole sure not to make it uh too heavy sure so Charles My Buk- back's already up, actually, <laughs> that Charles Bukowski is going to sort of lay it all out for us for everything poetry. But OK, I'm ready. OK. Mansplaining. <laughs> That's all right. I'm going to bring, the, you, I'm gonna bring the feminist rage. Don't worry. Uh, Ladies play. So when I was young, <laughs> when I was young, like in my teens, I was familiar with the name Bukowski. I didn't know much about him. Wait, I thought it, this was the poem you're reading. No, I was like, this guy's talking no, about I, I, I'm person? talking about who Charles Bukowski is. <laughs> oh, sorry. Is. Carry on. So I didn't know much. About, yeah, this is anyways. I didn't know much about him, but I knew he was a writer. And for the longest time, I thought he was like a Russian novelist, like Tolstoy or Dostoevsky in, in that vein. And then I didn't pay too much attention, but I'm a huge fan of the band Modest Mouse. And then on their 2004 album, Good News for People Who Love Bad News, they had a song called Bukowski with the lyrics, woke up this morning and it seemed to me that every night turns out to be a little bit more like Bukowski. And yeah, I know he's a pretty good read, but God, he'd want to be such an a-hole. Mm. So that intrigued me even more. Um, <laughs> but it wouldn't be until Boxing Day of 2007 that I was in McNally Robinson wandering through their discount book section. And I saw one of Bukowski's books, Come On In, New Poems, which was when I A, realized with some skepticism that he was a poet and B, realized that he was not a Russian and not from the 19th century. But because I love that Modest Mouse song so much, I cracked open the book and read a random poem. And it sent chills down my spine. I was actually afraid to read another poem because what if liking that one poem were a fluke? But as it turns out, I I thought they were all good. And I don't think I've ever read free verse that makes use of enjambment seem so effortless. So after that, I was hooked and I read as much of his poetry as I could find, most of his novels, his collections of letters uh, and multiple biographies. And here's some things I learned about Charles Bukowski. So Modest Mouse was right. He's an (laughs) a-hole. He was born in Prussia, but moved to America at an early age. He was incredibly prolific, writing over 30 books of poetry and six novels. He was an early adapter of Apple computers. He was amazed at what computers could do to increase his output. In his correspondence, he almost always refers to poetry as posy. He was super smart and very well read, but often to his chagrin, he would mispronounce words in public because he had never heard them out loud before. We can relate. I'll say. (laughs) He's not well loved in academic or literary poetry circles, uh, but is well loved by the masses. He's kind of like the pop music of poetry. And some of his favorite things included alcohol, betting on horse racing, and cats in that order. Huh. 
So any thoughts on, on Charles Bukowski before we go into the poem? Were you guys familiar with his work? Familiar with him no, as a, just, as a no, person? I, I recognized the name, but that was as far as I, yes, I knew. Yeah, yeah, never read anything by him. It super surprised me to find out he like died in the 80s. Like I, like I said, I thought he was like ancient yeah. and Russian, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know that I've, I've read some of his stuff and I knew that he was sort of contemporary. Like I knew that he um, lived like in the 60s, 70s, and did a lot of writing during that time. Mm-hmm. And I also knew that he was just very, in my mind, and I don't know what this is based on, not from like a particular poem or, or anything, was that he was pretty macho and mm. male. Oh, yeah. and In like a super weird way, like in that he would like go out to bars and, and get in like bar fights all the time. But he also wrote poetry and listened to classical music right. all the time. Yeah. So like there's that weird sense about him. But the poem I picked was, I'm not all knowing but... Uh, One of the problems is that when most people sit down to write a poem, they think, now I'm going to write a poem. And then they go on to write a poem that sounds like a poem or what they think a poem should sound like. This is one of their problems, of course. And there are other problems. Those writers of poems that sound like poems think that they then must go around reading them to other people. This, they say, is done for status and recognition. They are careful not to mention vanity or the need of for instantaneous approbation from some sparse addled crowd. The best poems, it seems to me, are written out of an ultimate need. And once the poem is written, the only need after that is to write another. And the silence of the printed page is the best response to a finished work. In decades past, I once warned some poet friends of mine about the masturbatory nature of poetry readings done just for the applause of a handful of idiots. Isolate yourself and do your work, and if you must mix, then do it with those who have no interest at all in what you consider so important. Such anger, such self-righteous response did I receive from my poet friends that it seemed to me that I had exactly proved my point. After that, we all drifted apart, and that solved just one of my problems, and I suppose just one of theirs. (laughs) pretty good so yeah so that's i guess one of my favorite poems of all time just about the nature it talks about the nature of poetry and what it is and what it means to different people and the nature of poets and the nature of poets yes which i i guess it addresses some of the the stereotypes about uh poetry who reads poetry uh only poets read poetry stuff like that yeah and then there's Mm. certain forms that it has to sound like and and now that those kinds of preconceptions that people have Mm. and the idea that well who can understand poetry right or they have this disdain for it too because poetry is something back in the olden days that you would have to actually like um, memorize for school Mm. and why like yeah it did make me think about this book that I picked up, The Hatred oh, of Poetry. Yeah, I totally meant to read that. <laughs> <laughs> by Ben Lerner. It's like one big long essay about the hatred of poetry. Um, and it starts with by uh, Marianne Moore, her uh, short uh, poem called Poetry, which starts, I too dislike it. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. Yeah. It's real. Right? Yeah, because that's yeah, because like poetry tries tries to capture something real, so it evokes strong emotions, like more real than other things. Like yes, okay, go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to talk about it with my word a little bit more, but like I don't know if it was in that definition at all about what poetry is. I guess it'll, I'll talk about it more with my. I, I guess my my, nerd my, word. my thought would be like that. I that like bleeds into the pretentiousness of poetry that oh poetry touches something that no other form of art can touch oh i don't know if it claims to have exclusive ability to do that it's one of the ways that 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 somebody can do that though it's that that transcendental idea right like something that's truer than like myth like it's truer than literal truth oh yeah no that was in the that was in the thing (laughs) well also sort of like the idea that with poetry it's almost like an idea distilled down to its most elementary level where you're not constrained with punctuation or capitalization or proper sentences even you you can choose the perfect word and surround it by a couple of other words and you can create something that's almost like a piece of art that different people can read and get different things out of whereas like i feel like a novel you know we can have different feelings about it but we all pretty much are reading the same thing we're reading the same scenario uh, the same characterizations. We can discuss little things we pick up, but we, the four of us, five of us, including Dennis, could read a poem and each come away with something that's a little 
maybe personal to us that we've read into it. And, uh, you know, maybe you don't get that in other, maybe longer forms of writing. I don't know. Not that yeah. poems have to be short. There, I'm, I'm defining poems again. You can have poems that are novel length. Yeah, uh, I have an sure. example of one later. <laughs> are yeah. you so, going to read it? Stay <laughs> doing exactly. <laughs> the definition, Alan, being to evoke meanings in addition to or in place of the prosaic ostensible meaning. So you're taking like a... Right. But I, I mean, I, I still don't buy into the idea that there's something about poetry that can do those things that you can't get out of a novel or a short story or, or other things or a song. Or a and painting. that opens up a whole or a painting. Yeah. yeah so it's just another mode of, form. Uh, of expression for those types of ideas. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Which, so which it another... is. But then I guess my question is, does it do it well? Like no one talks about poems around the water cooler. No one's like, I... I there's, a, there's an I accessibility that, that the reputation of poetry perhaps has. And I think that that's changing a little bit too. Like there's all these like Instagram poetry, you know, <laughs> and like Rupi. Rupi Lepert. La, 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 la. That no. is Rupi. the correct pronunciation. Is that, by the way. Yeah. Yes, yeah. nailed it. Core, yeah. I think, is her name, Names. and yeah. and she's um, written some really fabulous books oh, of poetry. She's like the best selling. Yeah, her book is yeah. the best selling poetry book of all time. And to be fair, it is really good. Yeah, um, and. Uh, so yeah, so maybe the the perception of poetry is changing. That would be cool. Well, and what I like too about <laughs> a lot of poetry is that you can speaking about Katrina Vermed, who mm-hmm. we will mm-hmm. speak a little bit more at length later. But yeah. like, she has some of her poems written on um, buildings outside along yeah. Portage, you know, on mm-hmm. at the dollar store, you know, so that's accessible to everyone just walking by there or mm-hmm. or waiting for a bus and whatever that evokes in that person reading it or looking at it is something meaningful. I think. Absolutely. One of the people that I was looking at when we were choosing our poets is Amanda Lovelace, because her first book called The Princess Saves Herself in this one was a Goodreads uh, choice for poetry a couple of years ago. And it's interesting because she's kind of a, it seems like a, a lover or hater kind of poet, because a lot of her poetry is very short lines, sometimes just one word running down the page. And so they're relatively simple compared to some other poetry. And they're very modern, like they're dealing with very contemporary issues. So it's one of those like Instagram things where she's reaching certain people for sure. But then there's other people who are like saying this isn't really poetry, right? Which I think is a stupid thing to say because you can't judge that for somebody else. But the, the interesting thing about her is that I actually read like there is controversy as to whether she is saving or ruining poetry. And I'm like... Oh what a ridiculous thing. Wow. But I'm sure that's been said about every kind like E. E. Cummings, right? Right. Like everybody yeah. is going to like, oh, this person's ruining poetry. It's like, it's it's going to be fine. Yeah. Like, yeah. Let's just calm down. Yeah. Uh, ever, I, I don't know if I ever told you, you guys a story about uh, we had to memorize eight lines of poetry in high school, yeah. which was the thing that we talked about why you had to memorize things. What was the point of it? And, uh, you know, we had a day to memorize something and come back the next day. But right away, this kid put his hand up and said, I'm ready to go. And the teacher's like, yeah, right. He goes, no, I am. And, and, it's, and then he said, well, what are you going, what are you going to read? He says, I'm going to read a section from In Spring by E.E. E. Cummings. And that was a poem where it was one word per line. <laughs> so he got there, he said, it's spring and the goat-footed balloon man whistles far and wee. And then sits down. And that was his Yay! eight lines. And then, uh, you know, he, for a day he was a hero. And then the next day he just said, no more E.E. E. Cummings as far as, <laughs> as, far as, as far as memorization. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's See, and, pretty and clever. That's exactly how this book, The Hatred of Poetry, opens. Yeah. It, it talks about in ninth grade English, Mrs. X required us to memorize and recite a poem. And so that's and so he went to his high school librarian and said, what's the shortest poem? And actually, that's where the Marion Moore's uh-huh. poem came up. So uh-huh. I guess. Not yeah. an E. Cummings, but, but still. But see, I and here's the weird thing: is I kind of wish I, they had forced me to memorize more poetry in school, just to build that skill and that confidence of of speaking out loud from having something memorized. Yeah, if yeah. it's a memorizing practice, something more prose e might be easier, though. Right? But yeah, yeah. Wait, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, no. Right. Poetry oh you would disagree. Be, well, I mean, po- <laughs> the reason poetry exists in a lot of ways is because the meter and the rhyming scheme and the oh, structure yeah. add a lot uh, so that you can memorize, memorize it. And it was, it was, you know, an oral storytelling slash memorization tool before people had skills to write. They would use poetry because it's easier to remember poetry than it is to remember just words verbatim. Well, yeah, when I was in high school, there was that E.E. Cummings experience. But in addition to that, I think probably somewhere in my brain is about 
10 to 12 poems that are fully memorized. And I, I, mm-hmm. I don't think I can put myself on the spot and recite any here, but what does happen sometimes throughout my life, random pieces of these poems will just sort of like appear in front of me, like, uh, like the answer to like a magic eight ball. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm kind of grateful for having those things kind of like inside there. And uh, every once in a while, you know, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a two line couplet or something will just appear in my head or, or a certain line or a certain poem. And, and yeah, like I'm, I'm, it seemed kind of useless at the time, but I kind of wish I had more of those mm-hmm. in my brain. So well, didn't you For respond sure. to um, Phil's comment on Facebook? Yeah, yeah that's one of the poems. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, spring and fall to a young child. Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving? Leaves like the things of man, you with your fresh lots care for it, can you? Uh, as the heart grows older, comes the such heights colder, by and by no spare sigh, no through the world of one would leaf meal lie, and you will weep and know why. It is something, something, something you mourn for. It is Margaret you mourn for. Or something like that. Uh, I mean, that's, I mean, I, it's, yeah, it's not all there, but enough yeah, of it's yeah. there. Do we want to back that up for, yeah. for listeners who might not have followed the uh, the Facebook, the Facebook thread? thread. Mm-hmm. So how does... So Phil wrote in and uh, he gave a great paragraph, but he said, I like poetry in general because I can read a poem many times over and feel like I'll never really plumb the depths of it. I feel like it's the kind of thing that takes a lifetime to appreciate and understand and that's what I like most about it. And he talks about um, his favorite poets being Walt Whitman and Gerard Manley Hopkins. And I'm assuming, so you're, the poem you just quoted, I missed that. Yeah, that, that, was, that was Gerard Manley Hopkins. Okay. Uh, was yeah. one of the poems. One of the, one of the 10 that are mostly up there. I mean, there's, <laughs> I don't have it all. <laughs> there's but a few gaps yeah, in there. Yeah, but enough that's there that every once in a while, it comes back at me, you know, kind of like a, a bad uh, burrito. <laughs> Well, when I read that, when you had written that in, on Facebook, too, I was thinking, yeah, I have this Mary Oliver part of one of her poems that comes through to me all the time as I'm walking, as I, um, what will you do with your one most precious wild and, and wild life? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And that's a question then that yeah. I'm just constantly asking myself. And it comes from a very lovely Mary Oliver. So we also had another poem. comment on Facebook that I, I'm going to I'm going to try and use as a segue and a counterpoint uh, at the same time. So I, I'm I'm wondering if like because we're all librarians here, and if we're not maybe a little biased towards poetry and and the promotion of poetry. Maybe. Um, and so then you have comments from people like Marlene, who says, uh, in response to, do you have a favorite poem? She's like, don't have a favorite and I can take it or leave it like drop frost once upon a time. It's <laughs> 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 like the best comment ever. Yeah. And I, I feel like I'm a little down on poetry in this conversation right now, but most people I don't know. I, I read more poetry than most people I, I know. And I don't know, I guess, many people who do read a lot of poetry. But we can also segue into Robert Frost because that was Trevor's. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Alan, when you asked us each for a a poet and a book uh, for the uh, blog post to uh, promote this episode, to me, it sort of acted almost like a a Rorschach uh, inkblot test where there was sort of like, what's the first thing you think of when you think of poetry? And for me, you may have guessed, it was a poem that I had to memorize in high school. And so the poem I chose uh, was by Robert Frost, which I'll, I'll read in a sec. But uh, I mean, it feels like Robert Frost doesn't really need any introduction. Uh, you know, he was arguably one of the greatest American poets of the 20th century. He was famous sort of for his pastoral nature poetry of, you know, living on a farm in New England. And interestingly, like most of his really famous poems, like Mending Wall, uh, The Road Not Taken, The One I'm About to Read, uh, were all published like in his uh, young life. And then he went on uh, and, and lived the rest of his life kind of coasting on mm-hmm. these early poems. And and he had great notoriety during his lifetime, which isn't always the case with poets. Often they, they live these really hard lives and uh, have other jobs and things. But he seemed to just, you know, he was able to eat out... Uh, <laughs> And many nights for free because he was Robert Frost and and his the culmination of it was during JFK's inauguration he invited Robert Frost to come to deliver a uh, inaugural poem that, that he wrote but 
the sun was so bright on his uh, pages during the inauguration, he could not read it, Robert Frost. And so he just gave up and then recited from memory one of his older poems, which is kind of cool. And it was actually one that JFK asked uh, Robert Frost to read initially. He's like, no, I'm going to write something new. And they couldn't even read it. So it wasn't until after he died. So the book I chose was called In the Clearing. And the reason I chose it is because it was the last book that Robert Frost published in his lifetime. And I was kind of curious to see, uh, you know, what does a poet look like after they've had their heyday? And just like we, you can see, like with musicians, uh, you know, I love you too. Are they still putting out great albums? <laughs> Who's to say? Uh, and so I wanted to sort of see what, you know, Robert Frost looked like, uh, you know, at the end of his life. And you know what? They're not great poems, <laughs> uh, but uh, there was one in there that really kind of stuck with me. And it was, I felt it was kind of like the evil twin to the one that I, I picked for the blog post. So if it's all right, I might read just both of them yeah. back to back and, and just see what you guys think. So the first one, the famous one is called Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there was some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. So... You know, there it is. There it is. Uh, uh, but then in his last Frost, collection, everybody. yeah, his last collection, there's this poem called The Draft Horse. And I didn't think Robert Frost could still surprise me, but let me just read this. So, and, and, and keep the imagery of stopping my woods in your mind when you hear this, because I feel like th this is almost like related, linked somehow. The Draft Horse. With a lantern that wouldn't burn in too frail a buggy, we drove behind too heavy a horse through a pitch dark, limitless grove. And a man came out of the trees and took our horse by the head and reaching back to his ribs, deliberately stabbed him dead. The ponderous beast went down with a crack of a broken shaft and the night drew through the trees in one long, invidious draft. The most unquestioning pair that ever accepted fate and the least disposed to ascribe any more than we had to, to hate, we assumed that the man himself or someone he had to obey wanted us to get down and walk the rest of the way. Hmm. Ooh. Some guy goes out the woods and stabs their horse. You know? It's quite different. And, totally yeah, different imagery. Yeah, yeah, and the idea then, like, rather that, like, this horrible event happened to these people and that they just kind of keep going. Oh, well, I'm you still going to get to yeah, my... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, that, you know, so maybe even though it was his last uh, collection of poetry, he still had surprises in there for us to read. So it, It's funny, I was just looking at that last collection that you brought with us as, yes. a, as a visual prop yes. for this audio podcast. <laughs> and right at the very end there, it says um, that, that at age of 83, Frost still hesitated to call himself a poet, huh. insisting it's for the world to say whether you're a poet or not. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. He's a poet. <laughs> <laughs> what 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 makes one a poet? Do you have a definition? One who writes poetry. poetry. Okay. Maybe that's a good time to uh, all pat ourselves on the back for being poets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh uh, yes. Very interesting. Uh, so before we started recording today, Trevor had us do an exercise where we collaboratively, uh, the four of us and Dennis, wrote some poems. I don't know, Trevor, if you want to um, explain the process that we went through or if we should read the poems first and then explain the process. Uh, why don't we read the poems okay. and, and then like a terrible uh, uh, magician show our tricks afterwards. How, okay. how does that like sound? A and, like a pen and teller sort of thing? Yeah, and This maybe. is the trick and this yeah. is how we did it. Okay. And be sure to write in if you have any favorites of the poems that we've, <laughs> we've Yeah, written. we won't tell you who wrote which. Well, I guess we'll, we'll figure it out. But I was going to say who wrote which one. But. I'm going to say the title of my uh, poem last. I tell myself I could reach across and touch you, but would you feel it? The body remembers, but the body remains not. The only thing left is the hunger. And it's <sighs> called the cheeseburger ode. Oh, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. And you'll have to tune into our show notes to understand why cheeseburger is a in, in joke. <laughs> so uh, the poem that I have in front of me is called Narcissus. The frozen pond mirrors my heart. 
I stand like narcissists, mesmerized by the unyielding ice. Why, oh why, do I stand alone, left here among the cruel gray and white? Oh my gosh, that's really good too. Oh, you guys. We, th- we th- are poets. A, we are poets. Um, Only as a group. <laughs> no, those were both good. The monster. My wife. My life. My life. To live without you would be strife. I sing a song. I play the fife. The hunter poise sharpens the knife. And so it all ends. Life. I would just like to say that um, I like the ones that don't rhyme (laughs) but Fife if you can work Fife into a poem yeah that's good (laughs) the one I have is called Closed the clouds opened as we walked home that night my heart opened at the same moment the rain was renewal rebirth and suddenly it became clear Something had washed away. Whoa. These are good. <laughs> like, except for really the one that I read. But, no, they're all. Yeah, yeah. there's are. Yeah. All right, just one more. All right. Uh, this one, because uh, Dennis also participated in this, we have a fifth poem uh, that I will read on uh, Dennis's behalf. The title is Tell Myself. The snow is falling softly, and so is my despair. My affairs are not in order. I don't really care. Or so I tell myself. <laughs> oh, that's good too. Yeah. So I guess we haven't actually explained how we did this. No, right? no, we're just all really good at poetry, everybody. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> We've solved poetry. Yeah. <laughs> you can just churn them out. <laughs> I'm just... Yeah, so I, I was first introduced to this exercise actually last summer in uh, a family camp that we were, were at, but then I was reintroduced to it in this interesting book just called On Poetry by Glenn Maxwell, who is uh, a poet himself. And uh, what he had us do was take a deck of cards, shuffle them up, and then each one of us was dealt a card. And so depending on what suit you got and depending on what uh, number you got whether it was an ace or a number or or a face card it was a certain uh, scenario that you were dealt and i'm not gonna read them all but just to give you an idea if you were dealt hearts then you're with a loved one but it isn't going well hmm. and diamonds is something else clubs is something else and then the numbers mean different things too so for example if you have the two of hearts then you're with a loved one that's not going well and it's also very hot uh and so there's you know there there was a bunch of different however many combinations you can imagine uh just to give us something to sort of think about and then we each had to write down what we thought would be the first line to a poem uh thinking about our scenario and then after writing the first line we passed the sheet to the person to our left And then that person had to read that line and then try to come up with a second line that would sort of honor the spirit of the first line and then pass again. And then the the person would then get two lines and try to do the same, the same. And the result, we didn't know what the result was. And we actually, we didn't actually read them out till just now. now. So (laughs) it's kind of it was fun. Kind of that fun. was fun. Yeah. And uh, so I guess, you know. That's my kind of party game. <laughs> yeah, you know. And, yeah. and so, I mean, poetry, it, it can mean anything, right? And it's not just about uh, reading it and appreciating it, but but anyone can make poetry. Even uh, us goofballs here. <laughs> With your friends. Yeah. 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 So. Good job. It's a fun exercise. That was a fun exercise. Howdy, folks. Steve Locke here, local poet and writer. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast. Briefly, I just want to give a shout out to Speaking Crow, which is a monthly open mic series that I run. It's held in the Carol Shields Auditorium on the first Tuesday of every month. Sign up is at 7, and it's open to people of all backgrounds, all experience levels, where you can come and share your work and meet members of the community and also get a chance to see a featured reader that is someone who's established in the community. See you there. It is amazing then when you do read some Mm -hmm. poems and the work of some poets where it really is quite profound and has such meaning and yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that sounds like a good segue into your poet. (laughs) That would be great. My poet is Katrina Vermette, who I'm sure 
most Winnipeggers know, hopefully most uh, Manitobans and Canadians know. Uh, she is a Métis writer, novelist, creator, artist living here in Winnipeg. She won the Governor General's Literary Award for Poetry in 2013 for North End Love Songs. And the book that I am talking about today is River Woman, which I will also hold up mm-hmm. <laughs> as a prop. And this is her second book of poetry. But she is a poet, but she's also, of course, a novelist of the amazing book, The Break, also award-winning about an intergenerational family uh, saga in the north end of Winnipeg. She's also written for children, a whole series of uh, seven sacred teachings. And uh, she's also done graphic novels, uh, two volumes about a girl called Echo, which is about time traveling between from present day from her foster home to the Métis uh, resistance in the 1860s. And she also co-director and co-writer for This River, which was an NFB film. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to that because it's also this amazing, very, very short film that you can watch on the internet, a very personal perspective, Indigenous perspective of the river when searching for loved ones. So rivers are very constant, it seems, in a lot of her work and certainly lately. So River Woman is uh, the second book of poetry. It was published in the fall of 2018. My birthday's in the fall, and so my son actually gave me this book for my birthday. And this is why I can never get rid of books, because my family always writes in the books. um, And so that becomes meaningful for me, too. And so Isaac had written in there, I hope you can savor these poems. And that's exactly, I think, what you do with her poetry It's also very sparse, very minimalist. It's a book that you can read in one sitting. It's very personal and it turns very political. And there are great pieces to read out loud. Um, I think poetry is very much, a lot Mm -hmm. of poetry is like that, uh, to read it out loud. I like to walk a lot in Winnipeg and I walk a lot by the river and down to the river and I sit by the river. So um, I wanted to read the poem that I had put on the blog called River Story. It's very, very short. So it's in, it's in the second part of her collection. River Story. I search for stories of the river, scratch at the surface, dig deep, pull at bits of limestone and other forgotten things, but I can't find them, those things that we were never supposed to lose. I wait to hear the stories of the river, sit at the edge, scoop up the silence, My fingers tangle in the long, dark hair. There is always long, dark hair. That is where our spirits linger, left behind to wander the waves. I need to hear the stories of the river, about when she was young and her brown water was clean, loved. Yeah. So, and I think this is a collection, I've already read it a few times through, and it's something to kind of revisit. I also loved her North End Love Songs as well, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a book that the library had as one of their On the Same Page books. And uh, I know we uh, organized a program where uh, we had a bus that took folks on a bus tour of the North End, and Katrina Vermette was there and read aloud from her uh, stories, so which was amazing. So I think she is a gem, and all <laughs> Winnipeggers should know her. And, uh, uh, I have to her. say that um, of all the recommendations for books of poetry that uh, you guys recommended, um, I thought this one was the most accessible, and I, I got the most out of it. I got nothing out of Robert Frost. <laughs> <laughs> I got He's not fair. for everyone. I got very little out of Dorothy Parker mm-hmm. um, uh, from her poetry. Her short stories are pretty entertaining, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Well, and I think, too, I mean, you know, we all live here. Like, it, it, she always yeah. writes so much about place. Like, it's yeah, such a strong part of, of her work. So I think because we all live here as well, so... Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing about poetry or or what I think I find so hard about a lot of poetry is that I just don't know where it's coming from. So it's like just so obscure. And mm. I'm like, is it really worth it to try and puzzle this out? Like Phil had mentioned Walt Whitman and one of his famous poems is, um, Oh, Captain, My Captain. And I was like, I... I read it and I was like, oh, yeah, I know this poem from Dead Poets Society. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say. It's about Abraham Lincoln. Who knew? (laughs) Not me. And then I I don't know if you just read that poem by itself, if you can pick that up 
from that poem. I don't think you can, or I need to know a lot more about Abraham Lincoln. So I always find it so interesting to try and puzzle through poems. So I wonder if maybe that is why, because a, a lot of River Woman is about the rivers mm-hmm. surrounding Winnipeg. Um, so if that's subconsciously brings more meaning to the poems well, for me. Well, and because it's so accessible, I think it's it's also then makes it a really important book for folks to read because it does, um, I mean, it does get very, very political mm-hmm. as you get deeper into it. And, you know, she really does sort of confront colonization. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, and as settlers, I think to read these poems coming from her that are so personal um, and really sort of expose these wounds, it's important and accessible and uh yeah necessary and yeah very very necessary so it's kind of interesting you should mention that because the the poem that i didn't read because it made me super uncomfortable by robert frost was the one that he read at jfk's inauguration and it pretty much is a celebration of colonization uh it's i was reading it now like from you know a 2019 perspective i was like (laughs) you know it's it's called the gift outright and anyway i'm not no, you can you can seek it. it out. I'm not going to yeah. read it, yeah. but I'm just going to say, you know, uh, four Pulitzer prizes with, notwithstanding, you know, <laughs> he's a bit outdated. Uh, yeah, just yeah. a little bit. Right. Um, right. I feel like okay. So now might would be a good time to bring in Dorothy Parker because she's also was a kind of political activist comment commentary commentarian. <laughs> she did a lot of political commentary and pointing out the foibles of the the world in which she lived, and she wrote a bunch of different kinds of stuff. So I'll talk about her a little bit and then I'll I'll talk about kind of narrow in. Um, so Dorothy Parker was born in 1893. She was an uh, American poet, writer, critic and satirist based in New York. She was best known for her wit, wisecracks and eye for 20th century urban foibles. She rose to acclaim for her literary works published in such magazines as The New Yorker. She was one of the first people to have works in The New Yorker and as a founding member of the Algonquin Roundtable. Following the breakup of the circle, Parker traveled to Hollywood to pursue screenwriting. Her successes there, including two Academy Awards for, uh, interestingly enough, the 1937 Star is Born, um, (laughs) were curtailed. I did not know that. Two two nominations. um, Her successes were curtailed when her involvement in left-wing politics resulted in her being placed on the Hollywood blacklist. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dismissive of her own talents, she deplored her reputation as a wisecracker. After the United States entered the Second World War, Parker and Alexander Wolcott collaborated to produce an anthology of her works as part of a series. And that was republished as the book that I read this month for, well, I didn't read the whole book, honestly. The Portable Dorothy (laughs) Parker, which brought together a bunch of her different publications. And hers is one of three portables in the series that have remained in continuous print. The other two are William Shakespeare and the Bible. Whoa. Uh, She died in 1967 of a heart attack at the age of 73. In her will, she bequeathed her estate to Martin Luther King Jr., and he was apparently surprised. <laughs> and, his, uh, and his estate was surprised. Following King's wow. death, her estate was bequeathed by his family to the NAACP. Wow. Her executor, Lillian Hellman, bitterly but unsuccessfully contested this disposition. Her ashes remained unclaimed in various places, including her attorney, Paul O'Dwyer's filing cabinet, for approximately 17 years. In 1988, the NAACP claimed Parker's remains and designed a memorial garden for them outside its Baltimore headquarters. Mm, wow. So I thought that was an interesting mm-hmm. thing. Dorothy Parker, I'd never read. I'd always heard about and always felt like I should read. And I'm really glad I did because she was, the, she was I feel like one of those f- first women to actually just be famous for being who she was. Mm-hmm. Like she wrote commentary on books. She wrote commentary on popular culture. She published in a bunch of different magazines. She wrote short stories. She wrote poetry. And then when she went to Hollywood, she would spruce up lines and just do these sort of like random jobs just because she was super clever and biting. Almost like what they would call like a a script doctor nowadays where we're just brought in to punch up the dialogue or... Yeah, yeah. it was just her personality and her take on Mm -hmm, stuff. mm -hmm. That's why. And she was was highly paid for these things. And then when I was looking into her, I remembered uh, being exposed to her on uh, through the Gilmore Girls <laughs> because Amy Sherman Palladino, with the creator, her production company is actually called Dorothy Parker Drank here. <laughs> and when I was reading one of the one, reading her poetry, I kept coming across lines of things that I didn't know were Dorothy Parker. Mm-hmm. One was quoted in Gilmore Girls, where Rory is reading the portable Dorothy Parker, and it's from a piece called Coda, and it goes: "There's little in taking or giving. There's little in water or wine." This living, this living, this living, 
was never a project of mine. Oh, hard is the struggle, and sparse is the gain of the one at the top. For art is a form of catharsis, and love is a permanent flop. (laughs) And work is the province of cattle, and rests for a clam in a shell. So I'm thinking of throwing the battle. Would you kindly direct me to hell? Um, So she's, yeah, she's very... And and then there there was another random line. Um, from um, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with uh, Marilyn Monroe, where her character the whole time needs glasses, doesn't want, to put, oh. doesn't want to wear glasses. And she's finally asked about it. And she says, oh, you know what they say about women who wear glasses? And the fellow she's talking to says, no, what? And she says, men aren't attentive to women who wear glasses. And I'm like, I just thought that was like a funny thing that she thought people said. But it turns out there's a Dorothy Parker line, uh, men don't make passes don't at make women passes. who wear glasses, yeah. Yeah. which I didn't actually know about. So uh, reading Dorothy Parker was sort of like understanding the underpinnings of a lot of references that I'd never well, and I feel done like, before. Yeah, so much of Dorothy Parker that's known now is, you know, for those types of things, men don't make passes yeah. at girls who wear glasses. Yeah. And we've, um, for our the Library Happy Hour, our adult story time, we've actually read a lot of Dorothy Parker out aloud because nice. it's so great read aloud. And she does a lot of these sort of male-female kind of relationship dialogue pieces. And they are so good and yeah. so smart and so biting and funny. Funny. Yeah. So well, funny. funny. And yeah. I never made the connection until now between Dorothy Parker and the Gilmore Girls because mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of her short stories do have that quick witty banter like the Gilmore Girl style sense. where they're always like yeah. firing lines back and Word forth. Wordplay. Wordplay. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that the scripts are so dense because they're, they're always just talking and, and that carried over to our other shows like Bunheads and mm-hmm. uh, have, I don't know if you've seen the new one, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. No. It's it's great too. It's the same kind of like snappy rhythm which mm-hmm. is very Dorothy Parker-esque. Yeah. 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 So I very much enjoyed getting to know Dorothy Parker mm-hmm. a little bit. Even though this is a big book. The portable Dorothy Parker. <laughs> yeah. When you first recommended it, I was like, I'll read the whole thing. <laughs> and then I tried, I was like, then I was like, Mail, maybe I'll read some of the poetry. Mm. And I didn't really like the poetry that much. And I was like, well, maybe I'll try a short story. And I, I do I, like her short stories better, better, I think. Yeah. 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 I, I think maybe it's because you originally suggested a poem about a dog. And right away I was like, <laughs> I picked that one because it was like, well, so much of her poetry is very dark. She was periodically suicidal and she did have an alcohol problem and you know she wasn't happy person for for much of her life so the one that i chose for the blog post was uh just a funny one about a dog see Um, and i think i don't know maybe if you'd picked the more depressing one i would have enjoyed it more because i (laughs) i read the big blonde which deals with all those things that you talked about and i was like oh this is fascinating (laughs) i can't put this down good that's her i think that and that's her like most celebrated story so if you get if you want to dip your toe into a short story by portable dorothy parker it's a big blonde do, do i have time just to mention one more person you have all the time in the world i just we wanted because when we were looking <laughs> when we were looking into when i was looking into like how am i going to define poetry poetry magazine is a thing and i'm like okay you know wikipedia is like did you mean poetry magazine i'm like okay sure like poetry magazine and i remembered and i tweaked something in my brain Poetry Magazine was founded by a lady named Harriet Monroe. Does anybody remember Harriet Monroe? Yeah. We learned about her. From um, the, the Chicago oh, the, uh, the devil, great white devil, devil in the white, white city. Yeah. 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 She was the one that kept popping up, right? She and, kept popping yeah. up. She's, and she, she wrote was, a terrible poem. Nobody could hear her. Right. During the thing. During yeah, well, the, uh, and the devil in the white city says terrible. Yeah. She, but she was commissioned to do that, I believe. And she was paid for that terrible poem. But anyway, so her, so she was the founder of Poetry Magazine in 1912. And we read about her a little bit when we did uh, Devil in the White City. She was the sister-in-law of one of the architects, right. John Wellborn Root. And it really seemed based on that book that she was very much in love with him. <laughs> but she wrote a lot of letters. And so her letters form a lot of our written record about that time period and about the Chicago World's Fair. But she was also kind of neat. She was she was very broke until she sued the New York world for publishing a poem without her consent. And she was awarded $5,000. And with that and help from a publisher, she convinced 100 prominent Chicago business leaders to sponsor the magazine Poetry by each committing to $50 a year for a five-year subscription. So this, coupled with her settlement, launched the magazine in 1912 while upholding its promise to contributors of adequate payment for all published work. She was the editor for the first two years without salary and simultaneously worked as an art critic for the Chicago Tribune. By 1914, the magazine work was too much to accomplish while working other jobs, so she resigned from the Tribune and accepted a salary of $50 a month for the magazine. She continued editing the magazine until she died in Peru, 
at age 75, while on her way to climb Machu Picchu, the altitude, high altitudes reportedly triggered uh, cerebral hemorrhage, which caused her death. So uh, there's just another interesting lady in the history of poetry yeah. that I thought I'd well, and, mention, and, and, especially because it tied into one of our previous yeah, totally. books. Sure. If, if, if we're making honorable mentions of poets, I have one quick one I want to mention. Uh, <coughs> oh, go ahead. No. No. Well, we I was just going to say we had, we had someone write in with a favorite poem. Oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, so Christy wrote in via email and she said, uh, one of my favorite poems is Advice on Being a Man by Winnipeg poet Maurice Maru mm. uh, from his poetry book, Fear Not. The poems in this book resemble biblical psalms in form, but not exactly in subject. Around the time it was published, 2008, Christy was fortunate enough to attend a reading by the author and found this particular piece striking. Some of the advice is pretty good and somehow, even though it is humorous it is also incredibly touching dads are awesome uh so the poem is uh like i said advice on being a man and should we read the poem yeah since it's been talked up so much so advice on being a man uh by maurice maru for my son jeremy at 17 one never use the fly in your boxers if there are exceptions don't remember them two remember that a nuthatch is smarter than the poplar tree it clings to Three, always shoulder check. Blind spots are real. Change is real. And metal sluices through flesh. Four, never call back for clarification, except if you change your mind. Change your mind like a cat completely and quickly. Five, remember, if you have to cry in front of a woman or someone you love, especially a man, save it up, then pour it out like a seawall. Let yourself choke on the salt. Leave the stains on your face like an alkali pit or a deserted dock. Cry silently. Six, remember that the crow in the tree watches the cat. Seven, never be the crow. Eight, remember seeing your first lover getting out of bed and how the light plays over you both. Nine, always stare at the moon after you have sex. Ten, never wear a polka-dotted tie. Eleven, remember, I love you and I may not speak every word of this out loud. Twelve, always call home on Sundays. I will wait for your call. <laughs> Lovely. Trevor, did you want to do yours? Sure, yeah. I had well, one, one quick mention of yeah. a poet. Uh, I, I feel like as uh, librarians, I would be remiss not to mention Philip Larkin, who was a British poet, a 20th century, who, in addition to being a poet, was also a librarian at the very dismal-looking University of Hull Library in Northern England. And I first discovered him uh, reading the uh, Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events because uh, Count Olaf's final words in the series were actually taken from Philip Larkin. Now, I won't read the whole poem because it's kind of sweary, but I, <laughs> but I will read the last uh, stanza, which is Count Olaf's uh, final, final words. Man hands misery on to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was a grump and he was kind of a curmudgeon, but I kind of like Philip Larkin. Yeah. Aside from the thousands of books of poetry available through your Winnipeg Public Library's 20 branches, your library card also gives you access to the Poetry and Short Story Reference Center, an online database available through our website. This database includes more than 700,000 classic and contemporary full-text poems and over 50,000 full-text short stories. You can search for keywords to find poems. Try classic poetic terms like love, heartbreak, or tax return. Browse through categories like poetic forms, themes, and techniques to find examples of didactic poetry, madrigals, or limericks. Or check out the Poem Analyses category and read about some of the controversy surrounding William Wordsworth's A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal. There's plenty to dig into here. To access this database, go to winnipeg.ca library, click on the Databases button, and click on the link for the Poetry and Short Story Reference Center. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, the part of each show where our hosts boil down their most prevalent thoughts of the past month into one word. Do we have any takers I to go, go first? I want to go first because mine is related to poetry very much. Exactly. <laughs> is that all right? Yes. Is it poetry? Sure. Is poetry your word? It's mm-hmm. poesis. Poesis. It's ancient Greek. And, and again, I, I tried to pronounce it correctly, but I feel like I did not. It's the ancient Greek word that poetry derives from. So in philosophy, it's the activity in which a person brings something into being that did not exist before. In the Symposium by Plato, 
Plato describes how mortals strive for immortality in relation to poesis. Such movement can occur, okay, it's quoting, quoting, such a movement can occur in three kinds of poesis. One, natural poesis through sexual procreation. Two, poesis in the city through the attainment of heroic fame. And, and finally, three, poesis in the soul through the cultivation of virtue and knowledge. And this would be my book that you could read. I don't know if it's good, but I'm going to read it next. That's because of this excerpt that I found. In their 2011 book, All Things Shining, Hubert Dreyfus and Sean Dorrance Kelly conclude that embracing a metapoetic mindset is the best, if not the only, method for authenticate meaning in our secular times. Quote, Metapoesis, as one might call it, steers between the twin dangers of the secular age. It resists nihilism by reappropriating the sacred phenomenon of physis, physis, but cultivates the skill to resist physis in its abhorrent fanatical form. Living well in our secular nihilistic age, therefore, requires the higher order skill of recognizing when to rise up as one with the ecstatic crowd and when to turn heel and walk rapidly away. Furthermore, Dreyfus and Dorrance Kelly urge each person to become a sort of craftsman whose responsibility it is to refine their faculty of poesis in order to achieve existential meaning in their lives and to reconcile their bodies with whatever transcendence there is to be had in life itself. The task of the craftsman is not to generate the meaning, but rather to cultivate in himself the skill for discerning the meanings that are already there. So that's a book I'm going to be reading next to see what the heck. <laughs> You'll have to report back I was to just going to say, yes, we, we expect a big report on that. Yeah. <laughs> so poesis. Uh, I, also, I also have a, a, a poetry-related nerd word. It's metrophobia, which is the fear of poetry. Oh. It's actually a real thing that recognized by the American Psychiatric Association. And uh, oh. it's really, a, people get therapy for this if they're afraid of poetry. Sometimes it started in school when uh, people are told this is the way you have to understand poetry and people feel like it's beyond them people think that it's uh, uh too complicated or uh you know to, to figure out so i hope our podcast today has uh helped you those of you that suffer from metrophobia to see that poetry <laughs> does not have to be unattainable and another thing that might help is a book that i just uh, discovered this week uh kirsten and i were, were at a sort of a spring preview event for some canadian publishers and emily from east CW Press uh, gave me this copy of How a Poem Moves by Adam Soul. And Adam Soul had a, uh, a blog post for many years. He's a poet himself, a Canadian poet, called How a Poem Moves. And his whole idea was to present a poem and then uh, have a short commentary on it about why he likes this poem or, or what it is. And he kind of used the analogy that he was like a park ranger taking a bunch of people who had never been in nature before and just pointing out certain things so that the next time these people were in nature, they could find these things for themselves. So it's very unpretentious. It's very readable. And I'm learning uh, a bunch of whole new poets I never even heard of. There's one called C.K. Williams that now I've put his book on hold because I'm, I'm fascinated because one of his poems was in this book. So uh, How a Poem Moves by Adam Soul can cure your metrophobia. Ooh, metrophobia. Yeah. Okay. So I can go next. You can go next. Sure. sure. I so I have a little bit of a survey for you guys before before mm. we get into my words. So I want you to, you're going to visualize something so you can close your eyes or not. The audience will never know. Uh, so visualize a rising sun. Consider carefully the picture that comes before your mind's eye. The sun is rising above the horizon into a hazy sky. Now rate the image in your mind's eye on the following scale. No image at all, only knowing that you are thinking of the object. Vague and dim, moderately clear and vivid, clear and reasonably vivid, or perfectly clear and as vivid as a normal vision. And so, what were your ratings for this? Clear and vivid. vivid. Moderate. Moderate. Yeah. Three three to four. The the one that wasn't the very highest one. Yeah. Next one down. Reasonably vivid. Yeah. yeah. Like not as clear as vision. Right. Right. Okay. Yep. So my word is aphantasia, uh, which is uh, my definitions from Wikipedia, is the suggested name for a condition where one does not possess a functioning mind's eye and cannot voluntarily visualize imagery. So for me, when I visualize something, I have no image at all. I only know that I'm thinking of the object. I can't actually see the objects. And how this relates to poetry, one of the most interesting discussions I've had with someone about this is we were talking about how like 
anything to do with like landscapes or or, or talking about yeah landscapes or or the environment in books or poetry just like does like absolutely nothing for me which is why robert frost was like <laughs> i was like so so bored um and uh yeah so a lot of poetry relies on visual imagery which uh and so i don't really have a picture in my mind's eye so i'm not sure if this is why i don't like poetry or if it's just a coincidence that i don't like um mm. landscape imagery yeah so it's a, it's, it's a question mm. as to that's whether really that's true yeah, or not yeah, yeah. Okay, now our nerd words don't always have to like, no, you know, relate to no. the subject at hand. No, however, um, <laughs> and it mine sort of does. But um, with reading all this poetry, I've also been reading more poetry and short essays uh, in this collection called "Gush: Menstrual Manifestos for Our Time." I'm about to read that. Oh my gosh, it's so good! Uh, it's uh, edited by Rosanna Deerchild, uh, Ariel Gordon, who's a local poet, and Tennis McDonald, and it's a hundred different women and non-binary folks. Tannis McDonald, we talked about her oh, last episode. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so obviously they're all talking about menstruation. Um, and uh, why I, I, I mean, there's some fabulous, fabulous pieces in here, uh, poetry. And one of the poems I read, it's actually the very, very last poem. And uh, why it relates to the, the book that I had also uh, brought to River Woman. This one is called The River Has a Mind of Her Own. And I'm just going to read just the first stanza by Sherry D. Wilson. No time to read runes on the fullest of full, full moons. Buffalo Plains people, brace yourselves. Stay away from the riverbanks. She's moving fast. She's picking up speed. From floodlines, our bloodlines are about to bleed. <laughs> anyway, it's a fabulous book. And so then it's this menstrual manifesto. And uh, then it got me thinking about how I just celebrated a very important anniversary, April 12th. Uh, it's been one year since uh, my very last period, which means <laughs> I am in menopause, people. Congratulations. And thank you. So um, <laughs> now uh, with that comes a lot of things like um, hot flashes and dreams. I've been dreaming a lot and it hasn't been all that great. Uh, not very joyful, um, quite no, disturbing. No Taylor Swift. Uh, <laughs> no Taylor Swift uh, dreams. Oh Actually, my sister, who's exactly my age, shout out to Carrie, uh, she just texted a, a my family in our group text saying that she dreamt that Curious George was a member of our family and that I was his mother. <laughs> and I was like, I need to have joyful dreams like that. Yeah. Where I'm Curious George's mother. Anyway, so dream <laughs> is my um, uh, nerd word. And it's interesting because the etymology of the word, it comes from uh, mid-13th century, the Old Norse draumer, um, the Old Saxon drom, which means a sequence of sensations or images passing through the mind of a sleeping person. Um, so that's fairly, mm. that's understandable. But before that, there was also an Old English word, dream, that meant joy, mirth, noisy merriment, and music. Hmm. Now, those aren't the same. like, mm. and, and so after that word, actually, in Middle English, um, Old English, it did become obsolete in the 13th century. And it, there was also a verb, dreimen, which meant to sing, rejoice, play music. So that became obsolete. And then this new, the Norse, the Old Norse version of dream uh, became more accepted. But I've just decided I'm going to reclaim the Old English <laughs> dream of joy, mirth, noisy, merry making um, mm -hmm. to mean dream for me so that I can stop with these disturbing, not so happy dreams. Would, so, would you go as so far as to say nightmares? Are these uh, night terrors? Night terrors. Yes, yes, okay. yeah. So I'm reclaiming um, dream. Good. Okay. Yeah. Kirsten, you're a dream to us. Oh, <laughs> Trevor. But which version? <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, we have to sign off for this month. Thank you so much, dear readers, for tuning into this, our 16th episode of Time to Read. In May, join us as we explore the 100th anniversary of the Winnipeg General's strike by reading Margaret Sweatman's novel, Fox, which has been described as a deft examination of said strike. Reach out to us ahead of time so we can incorporate your thoughts into this episode by emailing us at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca or find us on Facebook. 
We'd love it if you hit subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast service. We'd love it even more if you were to give us a five-star rating. Until next time, make sure you find... Time to read. Poetry. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Time to Read podcast. We are talking about poetry by poets. Time to Read is a production of the Winnipeg Public Library. Our panel today included Trevor Lockhart, Erica Ball, Alan Chorney, and Kirsten Worman. Our webmaster is Aaron Seaburn. Our social media guru is Regan Brew. Audio production and music by Dennis Penner. Some of our comments today came from Phil, Marlene, and Christy. You can be part of our show, too. Email us at wpl-podcast at winnipeg.ca with suggestions for books that you'd like us to read and discuss and comments and questions about the book we're reading for our next show. Visit us on the web at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. Check out our show notes with links to some of the things we talked about today and take part in a discussion about the books we're reading. You can also join our Facebook group. Next month, we're reading Fox by Margaret Swetman. We're looking forward to hearing what you think about it. podcast where there was like the thing about the shirts yes. i was wearing a shirt <laughs> that i forgot to talk about it's my introvert shirt it says introverts unite we're here we're uncomfortable we want to go home <sighs> darn <sighs> there's always i thought next it was year. apt there's always next year yeah anyway i finally remembered to tell you guys uh. <laughs>